Hello. So today's reading is from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. According to The Guardian last month, persecution of Christians around the world has increased during the COVID pandemic. With a 60% increase over 2020 compared to the previous year in the number of Christians killed for their faith. So here's a question. Do you think because these Christians suffer in this way, they are worse sinners than other Christians? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they do. And a recent inquiry into the cladding that caught fire on Grenfell Tower in 2017, leading to the loss of 72 lives, with a further 70 seriously injured, states that the manufacturer of the cladding suppressed the fact that it had not passed fire safety tests. So here's another question. Do you think that those who perished and suffered when the tower caught fire were worse offenders than any others who lived in London? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you would all perish just as they did. Are you shocked? If so, then I think that's the point. Too often, it's too easy for us to rationalise to ourselves the terrible tragedies that befall other people. The sense of relief that it isn't on this occasion, me and mine, facing persecution in another country or dying in a horrific tower fire, the sense of relief can be so great that we gift ourselves an inflated sense of our own cosmic importance. And then, oh so subtly, we distance ourselves from the suffering of others. The relief of it hasn't happened to me can easily become the conviction that it could never happen to me. The presence of evil and suffering in our world is always disturbing. Tragedy surrounds us on every side. And the question that bubbles below the surface now, as it always has, is whose fault is this? And today, as always, there are plenty of people who will offer an opinion. Listen to this wonderful and terrifying quote from the great Richard Dawkins. He says, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, 
Thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst and disease. And it must be so. If there ever is a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. And that's a quote from uh, Richard Dawkins, River Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life. Whose fault is it when people suffer? No one's fault, says Dawkins. These things just happen. It's the way the universe is constructed. Dawkins, of course, is reacting, quite rightly, against those people who persist in ascribing everything to God's action or intervention. You know the argument. Why did those people die? Because God inscrutably has willed it. Why am I still here? Because God, for reasons unfathomed, has deemed it to be so. I remember when I was in my first church and a wonderful young man named Phil was elected as a deacon. He was 21 years old, engaged to be married and training to be a nurse. And after a fairly chaotic teenage years, he turned his life around and then one night, he just died. I'd spent the evening with him planning the next Sunday evening's service and I went home and he went to bed with a headache and the next morning he was dead from meningitis and he never made his first deacons meeting. And some people said God takes those that he loves the most and some people said God must want him for something special in heaven and some people said God has spared him a life of suffering. Others said that his death was the work of the evil one who had snatched Phil's life from him far too young. Others said that God could have intervened, but for reasons we know not of, chose not to. And you know, I didn't then, and 25 years later, I still don't buy any of those answers. If that's the way God works, then I'm with Richard Dawkins. Interestingly, in the ancient world, people were a lot less willing to attribute evil to God's carelessness or to God's non-involvement. They assumed that tragedy generally reflected God's judgment for sin committed. So if tragedy came, uh, if and when tragedy came, the ancient logic of the book of Deuteronomy suggested that responsibility must lie with the person who has experienced the tragedy. In some sense, they must have deserved it. And it was this perspective which led Jesus to respond to the news reports that were circulating about a pair of recent Palestinian tragedies. And in his engagement with these two stories, Jesus took popular assumptions about who might be blamed for such suffering and turned them into an opportunity for public reflection and indeed repentance. Rather than engage in abstract discussion about the misfortunes of others, Jesus personalises the issue and asks questions of those around him. What do you think 
he asks. Unless you repent, he warns. He takes the tragedies of the moment and asks those following him to reflect on where God might be found in the midst of all that horror and suffering. He doesn't turn his face from the news of tragic and sudden death, thanking his lucky stars that he wasn't there when it happened or muttering to himself, there but for the grace of God go I. Not a bit of it. Jesus faces the news of the tragedies square on and asks that most difficult question. Where on earth is God in the midst of such suffering? I'm going to contrast Bono with William Brock. Many of you will know that Bono is the lead singer of the band U2. And he had a line in the single that came out in the 1980s, Do They Know It's Christmas? You know, this was the, uh, the single raising funds for the famine at that point that was taking place in Africa with Bob Geldof sparing it. And Bono gets to sing uh, a line of searing honesty in that song. Uh, he sings, uh, tonight, thank God, it's them instead of you. William Brock, the first minister of Bloomsbury, famously said, the Bible and the Times newspaper are the best materials for the preacher. We have to take the news of the world and our faith and our scriptures and throw them together to see what can emerge. We can be honest about our emotions, but thank God tonight it's them and not us. But we cannot turn our eyes from the suffering of others. This quote, interestingly, the Bible and the Times newspaper are the best material for the preacher, has been uh, repeated in many a preaching class over the last 150 years, and it's not always ascribed to William Brock, I might add. Uh, there's a tradition ascribing the phrase to the great Swiss theologian Karl Barth, but seeing as Barth wasn't born until 11 years after Brock died, if he did say it, I think he may have been borrowing. At any rate, I'm claiming it back for Bloomsbury. To assert that the Bible and the Times newspaper are the best materials for the preacher is to say that the task of preaching includes the honest and public reflection on the events of the day, be they joyful news or tragic misfortune. It was also said of William Brock that the pastor of the Bloomsbury Chapel was a man who knew the times in which he lived and marked the signs thereof. It seems to me that this is both appropriate and Christ-like. Can we rightly interpret the signs of our times? Do we agree that what happens over there or to them should and must affect those of us who are over here? What are we to make then of Christians being persecuted unto death in their thousands? Or people dying in a horrific fire in a tower block in West London. Where is God in the midst of such horror? Where in all of this is the God that we worship, praise and adore Sunday by Sunday? Where is the God to whom we give thanks for our manifold blessings? What does it even mean to speak of God in the face of suffering? The hymn that we had just before the sermon, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, uh, was written by Nick and Anita Haig from the Northumbria community 
uh, written in the wake of um, a miscarriage and in the loss of their child. It's an assertion of faith in the face of death. Well, as I say, these questions are not new and they didn't elude Jesus either. So some people came to tell him of a recent tragedy that had taken place in the temple. Pilate, the Roman governor, had killed some Jews and allowed their blood to be mixed with the blood of the sacrifices in the temple. It can be hard for us, I think, to appreciate how significant this event would have been in Jewish circles. It was not just a horrific murder. It was a desecration of faith. Such an attack in a sacred setting was sure to raise passions to a high level. It's as if someone symbolically marches into a church and starts shooting people as they pray or deliberately plants a bomb to go off in the mosque at prayer time. And in Jesus' day, this atrocity would have raised strong nationalistic questions as well as indignant outrage. You see, the Jews were fighting back against the Romans at that point. Jewish freedom fighters had been waging a low-level war against the legionaries in their land for the last 140 years or so. And occasionally, Rome struck back. With Pilate's murder of worshipping Jews and his subsequent desecration of the uh, altar in the temple, simply the latest example he was trying to make you can see how some might have wondered whether the unfortunate Jews, who just happened to be those in the temple at that moment, had in some way brought this on themselves. Was this a judgment for their sin? Or maybe this was a judgment for the Jewish rebellion against Rome. No, says Jesus. These Galileans who suffered in this way were no worse sinners than all other Galileans. But before the philosopher-theologians in the crowd could get lost in the various possibilities raised by the question, Jesus personalises it. He goes on, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. There is a more fundamental issue here than them and their sin. And this is the call on each of us to repent. The call to repent is the call of the Messiah summoning Israel to reconsider the meaning of her vocation as the people of God and to repent of the national pride, which interpreted that vocation in terms of privilege and worldly greatness. No, it wasn't their fault. But says Jesus, if you continue to take up arms against Rome, if you continue to meet Roman violence with more violence, eventually you too will die at the hands of the Romans. Jesus is making it clear that those who refuse his summons to change direction who refuse to abandon their flight into nationalistic rebellion against Rome, will bring down suffering and death not only on themselves, but on the many innocent, ordinary people who find themselves caught up in the world. Those who take the sword will eventually perish by the sword, and they do not perish alone. So, to update this a bit. Do we think that every Palestinian in our own time is a terrorist? Of course not. But nonetheless, many an innocent Palestinian, many innocent Palestinian women and children, face death and suffering because of the terrorist actions of a few. Do we think that every Israeli in our own time is an oppressor? Of course not. 
But nonetheless, many innocent Israeli women and children nonetheless face death and suffering because of the oppressive actions of a few. Do we think that every Muslim is a threat to national security? Of course not. But nonetheless, many innocent Islamic women and children face and men face death and suffering because of the actions of a few. Do we think that every American is a colonial oppressor? Of course not. But many innocent Americans died in New York in 2001. Do we think that every Brit is a colluder in oppression? Of course not. But many innocent British people have died here in our city as the spiral and cycles of violence continue to our own day. Do the innocent deserve to die? Never. But unless we all repent, we too will die like they die. Jesus then cites a second event to make the same point. This time, rather than a political tragedy, religious political tragedy, this time it, it's, it's a more of a natural catastrophe, something akin to a hurricane or an earthquake. A tower at Siloam has collapsed and killed 18 people. Siloam was a small area of Jerusalem close to the centre of the ancient city, just to the south of the temple itself. Here, an event apparently beyond anyone's control has taken place. And the question bubbles up again, who was responsible this time? The last time it was the conflict with Rome that triggered the massacre, but, but what about this time? Maybe disasters are different. No, Jesus' interpretation is exactly as it was before. Without repentance, all die similarly. Building accidents happen, people die, it's not their fault. But, says Jesus, if the Jerusalemites continue to refuse God's kingdom call to repent, if they continue to refuse to turn from their present agendas, then those who escape Roman swords will find the very walls of their city collapsing on top of them as the enemy closes in. The victims of tragedy, whether due to the vindictive severity of Pilate or to unforeseen accident, must not be regarded as outstanding sinners, especially singled out for divine retribution. Sometimes people are just simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. But the reminder of human mortality and the fragility of life nonetheless provides a salutary reminder that there are choices to be made in life, choices which can lead to death and choices which can lead to life, both for the person making the choice and for others who are affected by it. So Jesus, the one who calls people to peace, knows that ultimately when people resort to violence, violence wins and innocent people are killed. And this, of course, is why we are reading this passage in Lent. This is why Jesus must go to Jerusalem to confront the violent regime of Rome, not with a terrorist dagger or a popular uprising, but by embracing the violence of the cross and taking the worst excesses of human suffering and redeeming even the horrific death of an innocent man. And we need to hear this passion, passage, this Lent, as we too continue the journey towards the passion, towards the cross. Like the unfruitful fig tree at the end of the reading, who is just given one last chance to respond to special treatment, Jesus' call on Israel was that they must use the respite which God in his mercy has given them to bring about a national reformation, or they too will face death and suffering as Rome crushes them. The Gospel of Luke 
presents the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans in 70 AD as a direct result of their refusing to follow the way of peace, which Jesus urged throughout his ministry. And this all raises some profound questions for us as we try to discern the signs of our times. And as we grapple with the question of where God is at work in our world, of where God is at work in our lives, as we try to work out what it might be for us as the people of God in the 21st century to bear the fruit of the kingdom of God in the vineyard of our world. And as we ponder these issues, there are some key questions I think that we can ask ourselves that might help us find some answers. Firstly, where in our world do the innocent suffer? Where are the tragedies of suffering and death to be found? We heard earlier about uh, the London Citizens campaign for just transition around climate change. There are innocent people in our city suffering because of fuel poverty. They cannot afford to heat their homes and a just transition to a carbon neutral city can be something that lifts people out of fuel poverty. Similarly, further afield, there are places in Bangladesh which were once fertile river deltas that already are flooded beyond the point of use, leading to starvation of many because of rising sea levels. Where in our world do the innocent suffer? Just some examples as a result of the way our energy is generated. Secondly, another question, what are the mechanisms by which we either individually or as a society distance ourselves from that, su that suffering? What are the subtle mechanisms we employ to assuage our guilt and relieve ourselves of responsibility? It's not my home that's cold. It's not me or my family that can't feed themselves this year. And thirdly, what do we need to repent of? What do we need to do differently? What actions should we be taking as a result of the news of the sufferings of others? The challenge before Israel was to turn from violence and there are parallel challenges for us too. How often in our world do we meet violence with violence and in so doing create spirals of suffering that encircle the innocent? The Joint Public Issues Team of the Baptist Union published a report a few years ago called The Lies We Tell Ourselves, which highlighted some of the other more subtle ways that we might reject uh, or embrace the lies of self-justification. The report sought to end what we, it calls the comfortable myths about poverty. And it highlighted ways in which evidence is often skewed to put the blame for poverty at the door of the poor. Let me read you a very short excerpt. The myths exposed in this report, reinforced by politicians and the media, are convenient because they allow the poor to be blamed for their poverty and the rest of society to avoid taking any of the responsibility. The language of the deserving or undeserving poor can be very insidious. The myths about welfare claimants, people coming over here and taking our benefits, feeding into narratives of xenophobia and unwelcome of the other, the stranger, the person whose skin is a different colour to mine. The myths about those who rely on welfare benefits 
because that's their choice. It is not true. The reality, of course, is that in poverty, as in so many other areas of human suffering, bad things do not only happen to bad people, sometimes bad things happen to very good people who don't deserve it. And any viewpoint, whether religious or secular, which seems to blame people for their suffering, is surely something that in the name of Christ we need to expose and oppose. The issue which Jesus was tackling when he addressed the news reports was that of tragic deaths in Jerusalem. He challenged those unaffected by the news of other people's suffering to hear in those reports a call for their own repentance. And that same challenge echoes down the centuries to our world. Did you hear about the poor, the homeless, the dispossessed, the asylum seeker, the terminally ill, the tragically killed, the long-term sick, the war zone victim, the depressed, the possessed, the repossessed? Did you hear and did you think for one moment that their suffering was nothing to do with you? Did you find a way of justifying your own continued existence before God? Did you wonder if they in some way deserved their suffering? No? But I tell you, says Jesus, Unless you repent, you will all perish, just as they did. It really struck me how current what Simon shared with us was. You know, we had the, 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 the story of a tragedy with a tower and the questions it raised. And, and, and of course, with Grenfell Tower, we have that similar questions about that. And of course, we... We know suffering and violence in a way that the, the, the ancient peoples who heard Jesus speak did too. So I think there's much for us to draw on this. So I wonder if any, anyone on the panel would like to kick us off with some of their reflections. Amy, how can I pick on you perhaps? Um, can you can you give me a minute because I'm still trying to think. Sure, sorry, I'm very Thank you. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I can kick off. I must admit that what Nigel just said about how current everything is is it's so. Um, that's exactly what I was thinking. Like, in some ways, it's quite a heavy question because you think people you know nothing's changed we have the same arguments and the same worries and the same stresses but also the same questions about the nature of God that you know none of these things are new but at the same time so sometimes it can be quite hopeful like I don't have to have all the answers but at the same time it can it feels quite a heavy thing to sit and think about because those answers aren't always there yeah I think one thing that struck me is that, you know, Simon was challenging us to think at the end of how some of our actions and some of the things we live with can affect other people. So, you know, the way we use fuel and, and burn fuel here is affecting people in other parts of the world, such as Bangladesh, you know, so poor, a, a poor country is made poorer because some of its land cannot be used to grow food. And, it strikes me we're in a world where the poor are often penalised, but but also that those at the better end of the spectrum 
the advantage end of giving even more advantage. So when I was a student, we had a card game called Scumbags that we used to play a lot. It's sometimes called President, if you know it. And, and basically, it's a card game. And at the end of each round, everyone is assigned ranks according to whether they lost or won. And in the next round, the loser has to give their best cards to the people that won. And the people that won give their worst cards to the loser. So you have a natural inbuilt advantage. And it strikes me that, you know, we, we often as a society here in the UK benefit wildly. But even within our own society, people can benefit. We're told with COVID that if you have COVID, use a separate bathroom from the rest of your house. Well, I, you know, if you're fortunate to have a separate bathroom, that's great. You can do that. But of course, we hear that where COVID has spread most is, is often in disadvantaged households and often because people live in quite crowded circumstances. So that's just one small example how, you know, the tables are turned. We not only penalise those at the bottom, but we also advantage those who, who are already advantaged. So absolutely, yes. and there's that phrase, it's very expensive to be poor. I don't know if you've heard that phrase, but it's people go, Well, why can't if, if you're poor, why don't you just you know get a big do this or do this and then it would save you money? And it's like, but you need that money to save the money, and it it's yeah, it's really difficult. I've also um been watching a show on iPlayer that they've just put back on. Um, which is by a uh, historian called David Olasuga, and it's called um, Black and British A Forgotten History. And I've learned so much. And it's, it, it's all about kind of, I guess, our colonial, our colonial past of, of Britain and how British history is not just about here, but it's about the other places that we said, well, you belong to Britain, you know, and how we've treated black people over the, the centuries and it's a huge obviously it's a huge topic we can't cover today but still people have assumptions that were created hundreds of years ago about different types of people and whether they deserve to be poor or they just you know those kind of stereotypes I guess that's something I've been thinking about this morning about yeah stereotypes that we use to other people so we say well we're not like that other person and we might not overtly think that we're saying you deserve this but when you drill down to it, it quite often that is that is what's underlying your opinions about things very much so yeah um I'm sorry, I was just going to say, I think I found it um, quite challenging so for me and also quite difficult because it reminded me of something that I found quite difficult. So um, in a previous church, I remember um, we had a preacher who talked on Grenfell Tower and he decided it would be a fantastic idea to use it as a metaphor for hell and for punishing people. Wow. And I know it's quite a a deep thing to read but I think it shows that we have to be quite careful as to how we talk about tragedies like um even when we're using especially when we're using them for a metaphor for something wider that actually there are individuals involved and I was really glad that Simon was talking about 
how there's innocent people who are not to blame in any way at all. And I think we have to just be really mindful whenever we talk about something like that of, of the personal impact it's had on people and um, on, on communities, especially with something like Grenfell, um, but also other things as well. Um, so I just guess we have to all be mindful of that. Very much so. Susan, you look like you were about to say something. Yeah, it's hard to know what to say. Um, like, I think the main thing I feel like in response to the sermon is just anxiety. Like, the, I think, sort of like going through life and especially like, in a quite fortunate position that I am in socioeconomically and just like the constant like anxiety of am I doing the right thing and I have been like entrusted to hold like this I don't know say it's like a sum of money like I received an inheritance or will receive an inheritance recently and I am like terrified and I like this is something that like I, I like I'm getting like truly anxious about because I and sorry now it sounds like I'm saying that Simon's fault but like you have things like this and then you're just like I need to do the right thing because if I don't do the right thing like it's my fault and it's just it's terrifying to like because I, it's not like I can I can say like, oh, I'm just trying to do my best, but realistically, like what I will do affects other people. And so if I don't do the right thing, like I am complicit and it's scary. <laughs> and that's sort of, yeah, what like this makes me think of. Yeah, to, the, to those who've been entrusted much, much will be expected, that kind of thing. I, th I think, it, it, yeah, it is difficult. I, I, I think the only thing I, I would answer to that is we just have to try and do what, what we can with what we've got and try to help influence things. You know, what Helen was talking about with London citizens is a good example of trying to help to bring, bring some justice and help for other people. Um, quite often when tragedies occur you know, disasters and tragedies occur nowadays because quite often a man-made cause at the bottom of them. So some of the tragedies we see are caused by climate change. Um, something like Grenfell is caused by greed, essentially. And so we, we can also look at what does happen, grieve with those who mourn, but also say, well, what's going to be learned from this? What lessons learned? And then hold people in power to account to ensure they do something about these lessons, I guess. And now I wonder, because I'm on a different device today, I can't see the chat, so there might be thousands of chat. answers and pearls of wisdom, so I'm going to ask Helen to share with us what's, what's the talk on the street, Helen? The talk... <laughs> yeah. Um, so we've got a, a lot of comments. Um, Matthew has put in a, a good example, I guess, of something that's a little bit long so if you want to go to his bit he's got a, like a chunk in there um we've got some some good ideas Fifi was saying if something terrible happens 
she tries to think of rather than looking at the news and going this is happening to someone else how would I feel if it was happening to me or someone that I know something that I care about she says um, even the way things are reported in the media creates a distance between the people who are ingesting the media and those of people that it's happening to so I think that's that's an interesting way of doing it um Solomon has quoted our favorite Martin Luther King injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere definitely and we're thinking about that with with like covid vaccines and stuff at the moment it's a really good I guess example of that because the the phrase they're using on the news is you know no one's safe till everyone's safe so it's thinking about it's thinking about us I guess instead of me and me and you um and then oh everyone wants to say something now so if I go right back to the top again um Jeff suggested that we look at God as the poser of questions not the instigator of the problem so if something if a disaster happens saying okay afterwards when we're saying why did this happen could this thing have been changed can we change it for later you know does that um inspiration I guess to deal with things come from God maybe if we look at it in that way rather than looking at saying it's all God's fault that's just you know a, a different way of looking at it um there's some other bits and pieces as well I don't know if anyone wants to come in on those things a couple of people are talking about you know how do we vote it's, it's, hard, it's hard decisions um so i will plug the, the mayor if you want to, if you're not sure who to vote for come to the mayoral assembly because you'll hear what the candidates say about things what they're going to do what they're actually not going to do um wow it sounds like it's really busy on the chat today that's very good I, it's, as i'm reading it out lots of people are going oh actually i want to i want to comment so mm. there's quite a few i can't even keep up with it Great. Well, yeah, keep Liz, those. Yeah, Liz has just finished off recently, and it, and she says she struggles a lot with trying out how how faith works when bad things happen, which I think all of us do. Um, yeah, it's quite long. I'm going to leave people to read that one, but that's the most recent one that's just come in. It's good. It's getting good. us all thinking. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Well, these are difficult things to think about. And I think it's worth thinking about these things because I, I think a lot of us, you know, um, I think it was Amy who shared about a preacher likening Grenfell Tower to hell. You know, a lot of us have been at the, the receiving end of unhelpful, unhelpful theological explanations of things that have happened. And it, it's important to be careful and you know people can ascribe to god or not to god all sort all manner of things that suit our own interpretation so perhaps this will help us to think carefully and to respond appropriately and, and winsomely to to various things good well i think it's probably a, a good time to move on but I do of course keep the chat coming and keep keep it going on the chat dear lord you are the one who reigns over everything. We may never fully understand who you are and what you are doing, but we can get a sense of you. And we can see you, the image of you in each and every person who we meet 
and in the wider world. Please forgive us when we fall short of loving you and of loving those around you, around us in the way that um, you love us. Forgive us when we fall into the trap of thinking that we're better than someone else or judging someone because bad things have happened to them. Forgive us when we help us to show the same love that you have for us and to ask for your forgiveness when we fall short of that love. Forgive us for our sins as individuals, as a church and as a nation. Give us a wider perspective of what's going on in the world around us and in our communities. Thank you also, Lord, for bringing us here today, um, whether we're joining via Zoom, telephone or Facebook Live, or if we're listening after the service on the podcast. Thank you that we can come together um, despite our physical distance. Thank you also that despite the weird times that we live in, you bring us small moments of positivity and connection with others. Lord, we also bring before you those who particularly need to feel your love and your support at this time. Um, just take a moment of silence to pray for those people in our hearts. In the wider world, we pray for those who are feeling isolated or lonely during this time of pandemic. Help them to feel connected and a part of your family. We pray for those who don't find their home safe, who face domestic violence, or who feel unsafe for some other reason. Please bring them out of their situations and into a place of safety and security and love. We pray for those who don't have a home at all, whose housing is insecure or unsafe or who have to sleep rough. We pray that they would find the support that they need and they would, they would learn um, your love and feel a sense of dignity. Lord, you are a God who hates injustice, unfairness and inequality. We pray for justice for those who experience these things. But may we also examine our own hearts, so complicity and silence in the face of injustice. Please warm up our hearts to seeking justice and dismantling oppression and help us to do so together and not be afraid of feeling that we have to make um, those decisions on our own. God, thank you that you care for every single person here on this Zoom call. Many of us may be feeling burned out, low, anxious or stressed out about the future and what's going on in the world. Please help us to show the same love to ourselves that you have for us. And as we take care of ourselves, give us the courage to reach out and check in with others. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's end our service by saying a word of the grace together. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest with each one of us now and forever. Amen.